0: How are we, do, we doing tonight, Salt Company? Yeah. The last week of our Adventures in Babylon series. That's kind of crazy. We've got, already been five weeks since we started. And our last uh, Salt Company of October, that's a monumental event. Monday is Halloween. Pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, Halloween's a big deal where I'm from. Halloween capital of the world, if anyone has ever heard me talk about that before. is my hometown. Um, Yes, my name is Cole. If we have not met yet, I would love to meet you. And if we have met and you have forgotten my name, it's okay because I'm horrible with names. So I'd love to come up and talk to you afterwards. But I have the pleasure of getting to preach over Daniel 9 tonight is going to be where we are at as we wrap up the Adventures in Babylon series. And to start... Kind of what we're talking about tonight, I want us to first think about the saying, God is good. I want us to think about the saying, God is good. Some people would say that this is the basis of everything that we believe in our Christian walk. We believe what we believe about the Bible. We do what we do because we first believe that God is good. And we want to follow this God. But what does that actually mean, that God is good? Does that mean that God's personality is good? Does that mean that God does good things? Does that mean that God is good to those who do good? Does that mean that God is good to everybody on Earth all the time? I want us to think about the saying, God is good. And now, I want us to think about another saying that I've heard people say before that maybe some of you are familiar with. It says, good things come to those who wait, but better things come to those who work hard. And I want us to think about the assumption that's being made in that saying. It means that good is something that's generally out there And that it only comes to us on the basis of what we do and how hard we work or how good we ourselves are. Basically, it's saying that I will only experience good things if I do good things. And at an even more basic level, it's saying this, good will only come to me if I earn it. Good will only come to me if I earn it. And this resonates with some of our personal experiences, doesn't it? right? It's like, I worked hard and so I got into engineering school. Or I worked hard and so I got that J.P. Morgan Chase job in New York City that everybody would kill to have. Or I worked hard and I got the body that I always wanted because I did that. Right? A lot of us can resonate with this idea of working hard and getting what we want, but we also see the opposite of this, don't we? Right? It's like, I didn't work hard enough and so I failed that test or I never lost that amount of weight that I was trying to lose or I was never able to lift that amount of weight that I was trying to lift or I didn't work hard enough and so I lost that relationship, right? I failed in that area or I didn't work hard enough and I wasn't a good C group leader, right? I didn't have the C group that I always imagined. I didn't have the friends that I always imagined all because I did not work hard enough. I would guess that every single one of us in this room is hardwired to to some degree that we know that we need to earn what's coming our way. If we want it, we have to earn it. Or whatever we do, whatever happens to us is a result of what we've so I want us to think about that, and I want us to think about the original saying that we thought about to start the night. God is good. I'm concerned that for a lot of us in this room, we know that it's true that God is good, but we think that it's only really true specifically to us when we've had a good day. If I woke up early that morning and prayed and read my Bible, then God's good. Uh, When I didn't cuss that dude out who cut me off as I was driving to Trader Joe's, okay, yeah, God's good to me then. I did the right thing. Or when I was patient, when I was kind, when I did the dishes for my roommates, even though they didn't ask me to, God's good to me because I've been doing good things, right? But suddenly, when we've done something wrong, We begin to doubt God's goodness towards us, right? It's like, I went too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend, like really, really too far. And I'll go to connection group, or I'll go to SALT, or I'll go to Veritas, or I'll pray, or I'll read my Bible. I'll do those things, but only after I've given God time to cool off. We might not think that or articulate that, but that's practically how we live, Right? It's like God's mad at us, and so we can't approach him because we haven't been good enough. Here's the problem I think that we, culturally, probably just innately as humans, I think we are addicted to earning. When you look throughout the Bible, you see a bunch of stories of people trying to earn, right? It's one of the things that Jesus continually pushed back against when he was here on earth, tried to free us from. And the issue, because there are a lot of things that we earn in this life, right, that are good things, but the issue is that when we apply this addiction to earning to our relationship with God, when we apply that to our understanding of God's goodness, this idea of earning, the only thing that we can ever earn from God is hell. Because we've sinned. And Romans 6.23 says that the punishment for sin is death. And if you read, we know that that means especially eternal death, hell. Those are the wages of sin. So the only thing we can ever earn from God is that. And so, we need to come to the end of ourselves... And stop trying to earn. We need to stop trying to earn God's goodness, and we need to be freed from our addiction to earning because of how intricately that can play into our walk with Jesus. And in Daniel 9, we're gonna see a man, and we're gonna see a people who had come to the end of themselves and turned their faces to the Lord. So how do we come to the end of ourselves, and how do we break the addiction to earning? Well, I think there's three freedoms that we're going to see tonight, but before we get to that, we're going to start in Daniel 9, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. It's the longest chunk we'll be in tonight, so just bear with me, but I think it's very intentional. Daniel starts, he says, And the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth, who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom... In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly, we've rebelled, and we have turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far, and all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, that's been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses All this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from the iniquities and paying attention to your truth. So the Lord kept the disaster in mind and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all he has done. But we have not obeyed him. If we want to be freed from our addiction to earning, the first freedom that we need to live in is we need to live in the freedom of confession. That's freedom number one for tonight. So Daniel sees opens up in Daniel 9. Daniel sees that they're about to be brought back into Jerusalem, which, side note, is super cool because it means that he studied God's word and he knew it and he found joy in it, and that was the catalyst for this whole great prayer was him reading God's word and acting on it. But what's interesting about it is that rather than getting ready for the big move and gathering all the Israelites and getting ready to pack all their stuff and go back to Jerusalem, their holy city, Instead, what he does is he falls on his face and he prays to his God. And he prays to his father. And Daniel knows that the most important thing that he could do was pray. Why? Well, we don't have to look very far to see that. Daniel turns to pray because Daniel has seen that he and his relatives, on their own, cannot be a people who are set apart. Like be talked about last week they have continually failed in following God's commands. They didn't follow his law, which God had graciously given them. They'd repeatedly refused to obey him. They had sought to be the gods of their own lives by deciding what was good and bad. And even when they were carried away, when they were carried out of Jerusalem towards Babylon, verse 13 tells us that they, as a collective people, still had not turned their faces to the Lord. We see some other people in Daniel who have, but the vast majority of the Israelites hadn't. What Daniel is confessing is this Lord, we have wrongfully tried to be the gods of our own lives. You are perfect, and we have sinned against you. Ultimately, he's saying this We are not God, we are sinners. And who is God? Well, verse 4 tells us that God is great. He's awe inspiring. Verse 9 tells us that God is compassionate and he's merciful. He has grace for his people. And who are the Israelites? Well, the Israelites are people who have turned from this good God, this great, awe inspiring, compassionate, gracious God. These Israelites have turned away from them. And Daniel spends 10 verses of these 19 total verses in this section confessing God's righteousness and Israel's sinning against him. The vast majority of this whole prayer was Daniel confessing to God that they had pursued lordship over their own lives. And after nearly 70 years of exile, it was abundantly clear that they are not God. No matter how hard we try, we cannot be the lords of our own lives. And unless you think that this was unique to the Israelites, Romans 3.23 tells us that this is actually true of all of us. It tells us that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need to acknowledge in this room that we also, we sinned. There are sins all around us that we do and we are not God, and we need to acknowledge that in order to experience the freedom of confession. And you might hear that, and you might go, that doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds a lot like judgment to me, and that sounds a lot like condemnation to me, because you know what? I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to make the world a better place, I'm trying to make the right next step. I'm not trying to be a bad person. So this doesn't actually sound freeing to me. This sounds condemning for something that I'm, I'm trying here. Here's why it's a freedom. God is inviting every single one of us to stop trying to be something that we cannot be, namely the gods of our own lives. A friend was telling me, since it's fall and usually people start to get in relationships in the fall. This is one me and my now fiancé got in a relationship was in the fall. It's fall, people are getting in relationships, but there's an interesting statistic out there that says a bunch of relationships end after three months. Because you can only fake being a certain type of way for three months. And after three months, you can't do it anymore, so you break up. Or you can't pretend that you like the other person anymore, so you break up. After three months, we can only fake who we are for so long. Why? Because it kills us to try and be something that we are not. And we can only do it for so long. It eats away at us. It destroys us. And what Daniel is saying here and what the invitation for us in this freedom of confession is, is that we can, for the first time in our lives, let out our breath and say, you know what, God, I am not the Lord of my life. I am not in control of all these things. We can finally admit that we are broken, that we are sinful, and that we need our Father. I, uh, my sophomore year of college... Summer after freshman year of college, I worked construction. I poured concrete for a summer, which is a great experience. Um, I think every every dude especially should spend a summer working manual labor. Uh, I made pretty good money for that stage of my life. I made like $15 an hour, and I came to college, and I wasn't good with my money at all. Even though I was a finance major, I wasn't good with my money at all. I spent a lot of it, and at the end of October, I paid rent, and I had $27 to my name. My rent was $400 a month, gas was a lot, food was a lot, and I didn't even have the gas money to drive to my job. I had literally no money because I was irresponsible with it. I'd found myself in a huge hole, I didn't manage my money well, and I had literally no money to get myself out of it. I couldn't pay bills. I couldn't do anything but have massive anxiety about where my next fund of money was going to come from. So that I could live. And I didn't find relief from the anxiety until I went to my parents and told them about the situation. And I just said that I needed help. That I dug myself into that hole. And how much more is this true when we find ourselves in sin, the very thing that seeks to kill and destroy our souls forever? Forever. we've gotten ourselves into a hole that we cannot get ourselves out of and we need god to come and rescue us but the first step is acknowledging that we're in that hole right is to be real with ourselves about it mark 2:17 it talks about jesus he says he says this thing here he says it's not those who are well who need a doctor but those who are sick i didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. We need to acknowledge that we're in the hole. And so the application for this freedom, this freedom of confession is this, is we need to confess our sins. We need to be confessing our sins. We need to confess our brokenness. We need to confess our neediness. And we need to confess that we are not God. And we need to be specific in that confession. Because what we see here is that Daniel did not mince words with his confession because where confession is treated lightly, the freedom of confession is experienced lightly as well. But we weren't created to experience light freedom, were we? Every single one of us in this room was created to experience the fullness of freedom and its abundance and in its joy. So, we cannot treat confession lightly. Do this in prayer. Do this in connection group. Confess your sins. But confession can be scary for this reason because when we confess, our sins become real to us, right? And what happens when our sin becomes real? We run the risk of being rejected. We run the risk of being rejected because what if I confess and people look differently at me? Or what if I confess and somebody gets annoyed with me for confessing the same thing the thousandth time that I've been struggling with? Or they get angry at me? Or what if I just want to move on but confessing the sin makes it seem like it's still a problem and I just want to forget about it? Because if I forget about it, then it's not really there and I can just go on with my life. There's this massive aversion to sin. We have a ton of fears when it comes to confession because I would guess that a lot of us in this room have experienced some sort of negative thing when it comes to confession, whether that was the way somebody else responded to us, the way we respond to someone else when they tell us something that they did wrong, or the way that we think God is responding to us when we sin. It can be a scary thing. what happens in Daniel's confession? Well, if you guys look, verse 15 through 18, we're going to see the second freedom here. Daniel continues on. He says, now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as, as it is this day. We have sinned. We have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to all those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. If we want to be freed from our addiction to earning, the second thing we need to do, the second freedom we need to live in, is we need to live in the freedom of abundant compassion. That's freedom number two tonight. And Daniel begins to switch here in verse 15 from just a pure confession to a remembrance of God's goodness and mercy that he has shown the Israelites in the past, right? God bringing them out of Egypt and making his name known. And what's crazy here is that Daniel is saying what God is known for. He's known as a God who has people. He's known as a God who delivers his people. And he's known as a God who has a great name. And here's what, says, here's what Daniel says the Israelites are now known for. Yeah, they're known for sinning against that God. That good, compassionate God. So on what basis are they going to appeal to God to deliver them from the Persians and the Babylonians? On the basis of how good a people they are? Absolutely not. Because verse 18 essentially says this, we are not appealing to you on the basis of our goodness and righteousness because we don't have it. It's not there. There's not an ounce of it there. So God, instead, we are appealing to you on the basis of your abundant compassion. Your abundant compassion. Compassion and coming to the end of themselves, the Israelites didn't find a God who was rejecting them, but instead a God who was abundant in compassion. And notice this here Daniel is not saying, God, give us a clean slate and we promise that we won't sin again. If you deliver us, you promise we'll be good. Daniel is not making any promises about what him or the Israelites or anybody else will do if God delivers them. Instead, Daniel's entire focus is not on himself or what the Israelites can do, but it's entirely on the mercy and compassion of his God towards his people. The beauty of this is that there's no transactional aspect to this mercy. I don't know if anyone else did this. When you were a kid, when I was, like, in daycare or whatever, if I took something too far and I, like, hit somebody or, like, pushed somebody over and they started crying and I knew I was gonna get in trouble, I would like hold up my arm. I'd be like, here, hit me too, hit me too. Because if they hit me and hurt me, then we would be even and they couldn't snitch on me. We would be fine. All I wanted was to be even. That's what I cared about. That's what I was looking for. But that is not the case with God's mercy. God is compassionate with his people because God himself is compassionate. God was compassionate with his people when he brought them out of Egypt. God was compassionate with his people when not long after this prayer, he brings so many of them back to Jerusalem. God was compassionate to us when, while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us. God was not trying to make us even with him. Because think about this word, abundant. God's compassion does not come to an end. It is overflowing with goodness. When we come to God in confession, we're met with compassion. Why? Because God's name is made to be renowned and glorified in the mercy that he shows his people in forgiveness. When Daniel and the Israelites came to God for mercy and deliverance and compassion, when they confessed their iniquities to God, when they stopped trying to earn their righteousness, when they stopped trying to stand on their own, God's mercy, which had always been there, was more fully revealed so that everyone on earth could see God's goodness to his people. God's desire for us is not that we would be even, as though that could ever be the case. God's desire for us is that we would be his. That's his desire. Because look at, look at what Daniel's praying in verse 17. It says, Lord, make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. God's desire for his people is that his face would shine on them and this is done and experiencing his abundant mercy and compassion as we come to him with everything we have. All of it. We find freedom in God's abundant compassion because in confessing that we are not God, we find a God who is the true God and who shows us his glory because he cares about his glory being shown. And after we've given up all of our attempts to be the gods of our lives, and after we find rest in God's abundant compassion, then there's only one thing left for us to do. We need to worship our Lord and be concerned entirely with the glory of His name. Because look at the way that Daniel ends this prayer, verse 19. It says, Lord, hear, Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Freedom number three tonight is the freedom of worship. My sophomore year of high school, my dad and stepmom had my sister Tulani. Up until that point, so I was about 16 at this point, her birthday six days before mine. Up until this point, I was an only child. And what that means, essentially, is that my whole world revolved around me. Everything revolved around. Holidays revolved around me. What my parents were doing revolved around me. What food we ate revolved around me. All of it revolved around me. And in that moment, when my sister Tulani was born, I started to notice that in my mind, I was no longer the main character of my story anymore. All of a sudden, my sister, what she needed, what was important for her, that was what mattered. I started to notice that Tulani became the main character of that little story that I was in. And I was exhausted from being so concerned and consumed with myself all the time. And I bet a lot of us in this room can relate with that, right? It's like, I am exhausted of caring so much what other people think of me. I am so tired of being so concerned with what things will happen in my life or when they'll happen in my life. I'm exhausted of being so concerned with whether or not my life will play out the way that I want it to. If I'll marry the person I want to marry, if I'll get the job that I want to get, if I'll live in the place that I want to live in. I'm just tired because I can't control it. And I've been trying for so long to control it. And how freeing it was that for the first time in my life, I didn't have to be so concerned with myself anymore. In Daniel 9, in verse 19, we see a man who has had his chin lifted up by his Lord to look away from himself and toward the glory of God. Daniel's prayer was that for the sake of God's name, the people who bear the name of God and the city that bears the name of God would be rescued. And if that didn't bring glory to God's name, then Daniel didn't want it. This is the ultimate climax of what Daniel's praying here is, God, I want your name to be glorified. What had happened was that the people of Babylon, Persia, and all the surrounding areas looked at the God of Israel, some bushly God who couldn't deliver his people from their gods. The God of Israel wasn't powerful enough. The God of Israel either didn't care about his people enough or he certainly wasn't as strong as Marduk or any of the other gods who were in that area. He was little league. And Daniel's prayer was that God would deliver his people so that everyone would know who the one true God is. The God of Israel. That was the basis of what he was praying And who are the beneficiaries of God's name being glorified? We are. Every single one of us in this room, God's people are. Why? Because we were not created to be objects of worship, but to be worshipers. We were created to be worshipers. In this prayer of Daniel, we see God pull his people from delusions about who they are he comforts them, and he sets straight the object of their worship, and this is why we find the freedom in this verse. God frees us from being so concerned with ourselves that we miss the immeasurable joy and awe that he actually created us for. In the opening verses of this chapter, Daniel talks about how God is awe-inspiring. Verse 4, underline it. You can go back to it afterwards and just think about it. That one. And this is what Daniel realizes. God, we have value and we have worth to be saved. Not because of anything that we have done. But because we bear your name and we want to see your name glorified. Daniel's primary concern with this entire prayer is the glory of God. Otherwise, he would have stopped in verse 18 at God's abundant compassion. But he knows that God is glorified in that abundant compassion. We experience the freedom of worship because for the first time in our lives, we're no longer focused on ourselves or on other lesser objects of worship. But, we, but on the very one who we were created to worship the whole time. This is the prayer of God's people. You guys ready? God. Save me from my anxieties, so that you may be glorified by everyone around me knowing that you are the God who gives peace. God, save my mom from cancer so that people may know that you are God over disease. God, let me see someone get saved overseas this summer so that your name might be glorified as the Lord of the nations. But God, if these things do not bring the absolute maximum glory to your name in this moment, then God, do whatever does bring that glory because that's what I care about. That's where my joy, that's where my hope is, is in God's name being glorified. The answer to our addiction to earning is and it always has been to see the glory of God's name as the ultimate desire and aim of our life. To glorify his name anywhere we go, whenever we are there. And that glory of God took its ultimate form on the cross as God is glorified forever as the king who can save his people, even from death. No other king could do that. Darius couldn't do that. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do that. No other king could do that, but God can. God's name was glorified as the God who gives the mercy. As the God who doesn't ask his people to earn but asks his people to receive. As the God who frees us from worship of self and, and fixes our gaze on him and his glory. Guys, we can take a breath and we can stop being so exhausted about focusing on ourselves so much because we no longer need to toil to earn our righteousness, our goodness, or our acceptance. Because it's already ours in Christ. It's his. And if you're in him he gives it to you. And if you're not in him, man, I pray that you would be. What a gift this is. Do you guys pray with me? Lord, I feel like it would be a mistake for me to start this prayer by praying for anything other that your name would be glorified in this moment. God, as we go into worship, I pray that we would worship harder than we've ever worshiped in our entire lives, not so that we can have a good feeling, but because you're glorified in, in that worship happening. God, I pray that you would unify us as a people, as Christians not because we're worthy to be unified or because we're sinless or because we have it figured out, but God, because you are worthy to have a people who are unified for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your great name. God, ultimately, as we we worship here, as we leave, Lord, we just pray that you would free us from our addiction to earning as we see a God who asks nothing from us but that we would turn our face to him and follow him in glory. God, what a worthy God you are. May our hearts resound with praise. In your name that we pray, amen.